Uh, We're going to begin at verse 57 of Luke chapter 1. This is God's word. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zachariah after his father, but his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about throughout all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of the holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant that he swore uh, to our, uh, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, and you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit. And he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. This is God's word. Superb. As, we, as we've been looking over this series together over the last few weeks, we've been focusing our thoughts on, on this theme of hope. Uh, Christmas is nothing if it's not about hope. It's the hope of what God gives us. And we've been you know, examining that as we've been looking at some of these, what they call the infancy narratives, the way that it all came about uh, when Jesus came into the world. And then we celebrate that at Christmas. Um, and so what we're going to be looking at today, this is sort of like one of our final talks, I suppose, pick it up a bit next Sunday as well, um, but we're going to be looking this morning at four facets of hope, you know, four, four, four angles, that, I suppose, um, that, that really just energize our hope, and, and hopefully, um, hopefully, no pun intended, hopefully uh, we'll leave this morning with just deeper hope, more hope, um, because of what God has done for us. And what are those four facets? Well, first of all, uh, hope is rooted in mercy. Uh, the second facet is that it is, hope is marked by the Spirit. Third facet, hope anticipates total salvation. And fourth and final facet is that hope culminates in worship. Let's take our time as we examine uh, these things together. First of all, hope is rooted in mercy. Um, this is... The reason why we, as, uh, as people who follow Jesus, have any hope, and we have any hope to offer those who do not follow Jesus, is because it is rooted in God's mercy. It is rooted in something God has done for us. Um, that's where it starts. That's the, that's the grounds. That's the root um, of our hope. If it wasn't that, if it, if it was something else, um, then it's just a fairy tale. 
but we are hoping in something of substance, a thing that God has done. Um, we can maybe understand fairy tales and all their modern equivalents um, because they are, they are nice, they're stories, they're tales, they can be a distraction from the reality of, of this world and, and they can warm our hearts in some way and, and maybe even give us a moral lesson about how to live as better people. But at the end of the day, fairy tales and stories and all the rest of it are just coping mechanisms to deal with the brutality of life. But that is not at all what we have here in these verses, this, this hope that we are seeing develop and blossom in these first few um, passages in Luke 1 um, are, are, are filled with the mercy of God. And uh, if it's anything else other than that, uh, then it's not biblical hope. It's not the hope that we see here in, in the Gospel of Luke. Hope is rooted in mercy. Where, do, where does mercy come from? Um, well, well, it's used, actually, the word mercy is used three times in this section that we've just read together. I don't know if you picked it up as we, as we went through. Um, for example, in verses 57 and 58, um, old Elizabeth, and she was old. She was past reproductive age. They used to call her barren, the barren one. She bore a son. And uh, that was the promise of God through the angel. That's how the story in Luke's gospel began. She bore a son. And it says there in verses 57 and 58 that the neighbors were rejoicing with her because the Lord had shown her great mercy. That's the word that is used to describe God's actions upon his people. Mercy. That's his, it, it talks of his heart for his people, his heart towards Elizabeth and his heart of mercy. We could, otherwise, we could say he's, he's a merciful God. You know, he's a kind God. He's a compassionate God. He's, he's moved by the plight of his people and he will do something about it. That's mercy. Se- second uh, occurrence of the word mercy, you've possibly picked it up already, is in verse 72 uh, through Zechariah's prophecy. Uh, and he says in verse 72 uh, that God has shown uh, the mercy promised to our fathers, you know, the previous generations. Uh, do, do you remember that the angel appeared to, to Zechariah the priest um, at the beginning of Luke's gospel, and he said to Zechariah, you're going to have a son, you're going to call him John, he's going to be great before the Lord, he's going to have this powerful uh, ministry of reconciliation, he, he, he is going to prepare the people's hearts for the coming of the Lord, he's going to be a big deal. That was the promise, and, and, and Zechariah eventually sees that. He eventually gets that, although he initially resisted that, and, and he realizes this is happening. God is doing a new thing. He, he's breaking in. He's coming to us. This is the mercy that he has promised us from before. It is starting to take shape. So the actions of God again. And the third uh, occurrence of mercy again, you can see it in verse 78. Um, God is, is, is coming to address our, our deepest problems, our greatest problems, and he's come to, to do a, a, a deep work in his people. He's going to do a deep work to us. And it says that God is going to tell us how to be restored, how to be renewed and, and forgiven, and all the rest of it. And it says in verse 78, he does this. He comes to us and he tells us and he offers forgiveness because of the tender mercy of God. God is going to come personally to us. He's going to minister to us in our misery, in our despair, in our blackness and darkness. He is full of tender mercy. That's why he does it. This word um, tender, 
um, it's, it's a brilliant Greek word, um, splanknon. Splanknon, what a great word that is. It refers to the guts, you know, the, which typically was understood to be the deepest part of the emotions, the affections. We, we might refer to a gut feeling or you feel it in your gut. Well, this is the sort of the gut-wrenching, gut-level compassion, this affection that God feels, his mercy towards his people, and it leads him to enter into our world, into our darkness, and, and he brings light with him. If it were not so, I could offer you no hope this morning. Because hope is founded and is rooted in the mercy of God. Otherwise, there's no substance. Because of that mercy, however, we can have real hope. We're not pretending here. It's not a nice idea. Actual, functioning, heart-racing hope can be yours because of the mercy of God. And, and this, is, this is good news. It is tremendous news because it is, it is freeing. It is so freeing. Um, because our hope is ultimately in God's actions to us, not in our actions towards him. That frees us. Uh, or in other words, we have hope because of God and not because of ourselves. And that, that is such good news. That is such good news. That is so freeing because we don't need to look within ourselves um, for hope and for strength. We don't start there. Um, you, you might know yourself, depending on where you're at, but you might know yourself that there's no point in looking within yourself because you won't find anything there. You certainly won't find anything to give you hope and strength. Um, you, you might feel that in your current position, wherever that is, your current experience, you've got not much to hope for from within. In fact, you might be sitting here this morning acutely aware of your failures and your trouble and your mistakes and your, your screw-ups and your history. And, and you might think to yourself, well, there's no hope there. There's nothing for me to cling on to. But I think that's the point, isn't it? That, that's the good news. We don't begin by looking in the mirror at your own face. We begin by looking up into God's face. That's where it starts. And, and, and he looks upon you, as it says here, with tender mercy. This gut-level, deep mercy for you. And it's a mercy that stirs him to step into your situation and offer you salvation. And that's where we find hope. That's where it starts. That's, that's, that's why our hope is rooted in, in the mercy of God. First point. But the, the second facet of hope that I want to uh, just highlight again as we go through is, is the second one is that it's marked by the Spirit. Rooted in God, marked by the Spirit. You might notice as we've been going over the last few weeks um, some, some phrases or commentary, comments from Luke who wrote this stuff, um, the Gospel of, of Luke, um, that, that points to the ministry and the work of the Holy Spirit. Um, 
And, uh, we, you know, we, there, there is, I suppose what you could say, a pronounced activity of the Holy Spirit from the start. And as we continue through the gospel, Luke, of all the, the gospel writers, particularly Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he, he highlights and, and uh, celebrates the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Um, and, and, for example, we see Jesus being commissioned and empowered by the Holy Spirit when he, when he grows up, when he's a man and he's baptized and, and God speaks. He says, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. And the Holy Spirit um, comes upon him. Uh, without measure, equipping him for what lays ahead. Uh, Jesus is known, according to Luke, as the Spirit-filled man. He's one of us, and yet he is filled with the Spirit beyond measure. It's incredible. But here particularly, let's, let's look um, you know, through, through the first you know, bit of a review, really. In, in uh, chapter 1, we've seen verse 15, uh, when the angel speaks to Zechariah, he says to Zechariah about John, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. Or, or, or when the angel speaks to Mary, he says, the Holy Spirit will come on you and you will conceive and bear a son and his name will be Jesus. Or we saw last week, uh, Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and she erupted in this shout of praise and these words of knowledge, praising God. And so we see here um, in these verses, when John was born and he was named at his uh, circumcision ceremony, Zechariah um, was healed of this temporary inability to speak or hear. And it says in verse 67, the first thing out of his mouth, the father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit, it says, and he prophesied. And he said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel. He has, he has brought salvation. Salvation is here. His word never fails. His promises hold true. Blessing, blessing, blessing. He, he could barely contain, I think, this, this, this sudden gushing, this sudden freedom that he felt as he was filled with the Holy Spirit. God opened his mouth in an instant, and the first thing that spills out is praise, it is worship, it is adoration, it is declaration, it is a celebration of what God has done. Do you notice it says that he was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied? But it's interesting that his, when you read it, his prophecy contains nothing new in terms of new information. No new revelation per se. In fact, when you read the angel's message to Zechariah um, in verses 13 to 17, earlier in the chapter, you'll realize that Zechariah is simply saying much the same kind of things in his prophetic utterance. Look at what God has done. God has done what he promised. He's come to us in power. He's given us a son, just as was promised. That son will prepare the way for the Lord. These are the things that are, that are stirring Zechariah deeply right now. Add, that to, add to that, rather, the, 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 the phrases about raising up uh, from the household of David, uh, a leader, uh, someone who has spoken by the prophets from long ago, someone who's faithful to the promises of Abraham. All these are familiar themes to the people of Israel, and especially to Zechariah, who's a priest. He would have been trained and commonly thinking about these concepts. And I, and I think this is really helpful for us, really instructive for us, um, as we're thinking, particularly about this, this um, issue, this, this concept of, of prophecy. Um, Oftentimes, we, 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 we think of prophecy as simply telling the future, you know, revealing some new knowledge from God that, that we hadn't known before, or some new information. And it certainly can be that. But that, that's not all prophecy is about. And I think we see here 
Zachariah's prophecy brought no new knowledge. In fact, I think he already knew pretty much all of what he just said in this, in this amazing sort of eruption. But it seems to be that when he was, um, when he was filled with the Holy Spirit, something major shifted in his heart and in his mind. Something deeply impactful happened to Zachariah when he was, as it says, filled with the Holy Spirit. What is, what is that thing? Well, it seems to be that when he was filled with the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit came upon him in, in sort of power and suddenness. What Zachariah knew in his head suddenly dropped down into his heart. It's kind of like we would say the penny drops. Well, I think, I think, I think the stuff that he knew dropped into his heart. He, he, he got it. It's almost like the fire fell, you know, and if we can think of maybe the knowledge that he had as, as the, the dry wood, and the fire fell, and what happened is it caught fire, and, and what he already knew about God became red hot to him, so much so that he could not contain it, and he erupted in this spirit-filled uh, proclamation and worship. It suddenly hit home, and that's what happens oftentimes when someone is filled with the Holy Spirit. They are uh, empowered to praise God and declare the truth about him with boldness and with certainty, these faith-filled assertions about the plans of God. It might be that they already believed them. In fact, they probably did. They already agreed with them. But when they were filled with the Holy Spirit, this knowledge came uh, like a tsunami against them. It came with weight. It came with power. It came with certainty, certain, certainty. And they utterly, 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 utterly are sure of what is being said. This seems to be what is going on when Zechariah is prophesying here. He is animated by it. We, we, we obviously can't see it. We don't get any physical descriptions of what was going on, but he's... He's an old man, we know that. And he is suddenly filled with this energy, with this um, activity, uh, this noise, this enthusiasm. He went off like a firework. The dry wood started to burn. I suppose the question that you might have as we're, as we're thinking about this, reflecting on some of these things, is... Is this something that we can experience? Um, can we have something similar to what Zachariah had on that day? Should we even ask for it? Is it even ours? And I think we have to admit to ourselves and be clear that what we're reading here in Luke 1 and Luke 2 and all the rest of the gospel, um, they are extraordinary times. And what we're seeing are unique moments in the unfolding of God's great story of, of salvation and his mercy and his interactions with his people. And there are things that happen in, in, in these days and these ways that, that happen once and for all. And, and Luke continues, as we've been thinking, to emphasize the Holy Spirit throughout his gospel um, uh, book, I suppose. But, but then also, he's the only gospel writer who, who constructs a sequel, volume two, it's called Acts, the Acts of the Apostles. It's part two written by the same, um, the same author. And in that, he shows the church being animated and empowered in much the same way that we're seeing here, carried along by the same Holy Spirit that fell upon Zechariah and fell upon Elizabeth, and the same Holy Spirit that, that conceived the Son of God in the virgin's womb. 
bought something out of nothing. And, and if we're just looking at these things alone and we're saying, well, we can, we can have that too. If we're looking at that alone, then, 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 then we're arrogant. Even blasphemous to suggest that the same spirit that did these wonderful things can be given to us. And yet as we read on, as the New Testament continues and God reveals his heart and his mind to us through the writings, we see, for example, the Apostle Paul instructing the church and saying to them in Ephesians 4, 18, 5, 18, be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's the same word that we're talking about here in verse 67. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. Paul says to the church, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Likewise, he writes to another church and he says, earnestly desire the spiritual gifts especially that you may prophesy. These spirit-filled words of God. So taken together, it seems that we are the people of the Spirit. We are to be formed and filled by the Holy Spirit. We're to be empowered and comforted by him. It is God within us. And that's the second facet of our hope. It's marked by the Spirit. And we're going to have opportunities in a few moments as, as, as the message concludes to pray for a filling of the Holy Spirit, to, 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 to ask for more of him, to impact us in fresh new ways. He might, we might say to him, Lord, come and, and set light to the dry wood of my knowledge, the things that are going, come and, come and bring the fire, Lord. Free my tongue. Fill me with praise. It's a good gift. And God gives only good gifts to his kids. And so we're going to seek him together at the end and, and, and pray uh, together. It's marked by the Spirit's. Uh, the third facet of hope, then, we see in these, these verses um, is that it anticipates total salvation. Uh, anticipates total salvation. Now, we're really coming into the substance of our hope right now. Uh, and, and, and it's this term salvation, being saved. And uh, we see this in Zechariah's prophecy, for example, in verse um, 68. You know, blessed be the God, the, the Lord God of Israel has visited, he's redeemed his people, right? He saved them. Um, it says that he's raised up a horn of salvation, from the house of David. Uh, horn, uh, if you're unfamiliar with that, um, and, and why would you be? Um, it, it, uh, it refers very much to uh, a metaphor, a symbol of power, much like the horn of an ox. You know, uh, that horn is always going to win in a fight. The, the, the horn will always push enemies out of the way. And it became known, uh, particularly in sort of Hebrew writings, as a, as a symbol of strength and power. Um, and, and so what we're seeing here is, is the idea of someone with great strength and great power pushing away the enemies. Someone from the house of David, a king from the line of David. That's what salvation is going to look like. Does it ring any bells? It says in verse 71 uh, that we should be, he says, saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Or in verse 74, we're going to be delivered uh, from the hand of our enemies. So it seems to be that salvation is being saved from our enemies. It's getting out from under our enemies and becoming victorious over them. And certainly in the context of Zechariah, most probably foremost in his mind would have been uh, the foreign powers occupying the promised lands, you know, the Roman um, occupation of Palestine. That's how he would have seen it. 
And for him, uh, salvation would have had more of a nationalistic idea, you know? Strength to the people of Israel, failure to the enemies. It's this sort of political, the social salvation. And that would have been a wild, wild, widely held understanding in his day. But there's, there's another kind of salvation or another, another element to it, I suppose. In verse 77, it says that, that uh, you know, John, uh, when he comes of age, is going to give knowledge of salvation to the people of God in the forgiveness of their sins. It seemed to be that the people didn't just need a political salvation from the oppression of the Romans... They needed a, a deeper, a spiritual salvation. Yes, they needed to be saved as a nation. That's what they hoped for. But also they needed to be saved as individuals before God. Um, they, 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 they wanted and they needed God to deliver them from corrupt and oppressive systems. But they also needed God to deliver them from corrupt and oppressive hearts. And the two are linked, of course. They reinforce one another. Self-serving systems favor the f- that favor the few allow for self-serving hearts that favor themselves. Likewise, selfish hearts create selfish systems. Two sides of the same coin. And so here in this prophecy, Zechariah is hoping for, preparing for, total salvation from all of that. It's the corporate and it's the personal. It's us as a people, and it's me as a person. It's it's the vertical, me and God, me before God, and it's the horizontal, us and the nations. It is total salvation, and it is both. It's hope in the total salvation of God. And that's what Jesus is all about. That's his mission. He, He came as a king and a lord to rule over his people, and he came as a king and a lord to rule over you. And he rules over all his people in righteousness and justice, peace and beauty. But he's come to create in you righteousness and justice, peace and beauty. Jesus reaches the innermost parts of our hearts. He goes to the outermost parts of the world. He is the total saviour. He brings total salvation. And I think this is really important for us to to hang on to because it, it prevents us from dividing or choosing what kind of salvation that we look to Jesus it prevents us from saying well Jesus has really just come for spiritual salvation in which case we will reject the huge implications of the kingdom of God in the world against the systems of darkness shall we say it prevents us from saying but Jesus has just come to simply heal the social divides to bring a new way a new new way of living and in which case we will relegate the profound implications for the personal spirituality, the, the work of salvation in our hearts. But Zachariah, as we're saying here, is saying it's both. It is total salvation. It is here, it is beginning, and that is something to give us great hope. And I think this is good news for us, um, especially in our increasingly divided world our culture, our Western culture, whatever that might be, increasingly divided between the right and left of politics, between the elites and the populist movements, divided between conservative and liberal view of life. 
And even within the wider church, the, the, the church as a whole, uh, there is division. Some may overemphasize, as we're seeing, the spiritual salvation, neglecting the social aspects. And some may overemphasize the social aspects, neglecting the inner spiritual work. And what we're seeing here is that we can do neither of those things. We can be guilty of neither of those things. We should be guilty of neither of those things. Because of the cross, Jesus, and, and, and through the resurrection, he overcame all the enemies. It said that he dis- disarmed the rulers and authorities by triumphing over them in his body. That's what he did. He took down the systems of darkness. But also through his cross and his resurrection, it says that Jesus overcame the sin and the mess in you. It says he cancelled the record of debts, the violations that you have done against the perfect and holy law of God. He cancelled that by nailing it to the cross. Those two things were brought up in the exact same phrase by the Apostle Paul in Colossians chapter 2. Jesus has done both through the cross. It is total salvation. And I think the point that we need to really bring home with us is Jesus is the saviour and yet he's the saviour over all. He saves the inner enemies that we all have and he saves us from the external enemies in whichever guise they come. And in that we have hope. He's the total saviour. We have hope when we're looking at the latest political failures that we see on our news feeds. We have hope when we are just getting so discouraged and cynical about the latest culture wars that are taking place. We have hope when we look out at the face of the massive social need, even in our own city. In the darkness of our own hearts, we have hope. The personal experiences that take us down, we have hope. We have hope because he's a total saviour. Nothing too dark for him that he can't bring the light. He's over it all. Zachariah saw this. Luke witnessed it. Jesus did it. Thirdly and finally then, the fourth, sorry, fourthly and finally, the fourth facet of hope is that it culminates in worship. Um, I wonder if you've ever asked yourself, why are we saved? Why does God save us? Or in other words, it's great to be saved, but saved for what? Um, I think it's safe to say that certain traditions, maybe certain types of churches, um, prioritize getting saved, um, but saved for what purpose? What, what for? Um, and, and some are very good and clear about saying we are saved from, saved from sin, saved from the penalty of sin, saved from hell, eternal punishment for sin. We're saved from that through Jesus. And that is right, that is good, that is the, the hell and sin, and both are real, both get you into great trouble if you're not, there's nothing, you know, if you're not saved from them. Absolutely, amen, we need that. But what is the ultimate goal in that salvation? Is it simply avoiding hell, avoiding punishments? Well, Zechariah tells us in these verses, it says in verse 74, he says that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies, being saved, um, we might serve him, that is God, without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. 
That's why we're saved, according to Zechariah, in his spirit-filled prophecy here. We are saved to serve. That's why you're saved. That's why God goes through all this trouble to come and rescue you and save you and forgive you and, and apply the work of his son to you so that you can come back to him and know him and love him and serve him. That word serve, by the way, in, in, in the original Greek is latrio. It doesn't just refer to the service that maybe a, a slave would give to the master or you know, someone uh, working hard. No, that word is used to refer to homage that is paid to a deity. And it's referred to uh, worship, in other words, often translated as worship elsewhere. Offering up yourself or your resources to God in honor to him. That's what we are saved for. Delivered so that we might save, uh, serve him. We worship God, serve him, he says, without fear. That's why the enemies are removed. That's why Jesus comes and destroys them, whether they are spiritual or political and most likely a combination of both. Jesus frees you to serve him. Do you remember, do you remember uh, way back at the beginning of the story of Israel when they were slaves in Egypt? Uh, Moses was told by God to go to the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, and to say to, Mo, to, to Pharaoh, let us go. Let us go three days' journey into the wilderness that we might sacrifice to the Lord our God. He was saying to Pharaoh, free us so that we might serve God, so we might be free to worship him. That's what we're freed for. Uh, do you notice also in these verses it says that we are freed in holiness, uh, to serve him sorry, in holiness and righteousness. Yes, um, there are practices, there are religious activities, but serving God goes, goes deeper. Uh, Zechariah is pointing us to a kind of worship and a kind of obedience of God to God comes from the heart. That's, that's why he uses these words holiness and righteousness. It's not just a case of turning up to church on a Sunday, as important as that is. It is about worshipping God from the heart. It comes from within. It is living for God. It is enjoying him. Uh, it is pleasing him with our obedience to his word. We're saved to serve, to know, to commune with God, and it's not a burden. It's a joy. Does, does Zachariah appear to you to be burdened? No. He is completely freed to serve and worship and, and make much of God. And that's why he frees you. And so I think when, when you understand that you are saved to serve, when you see that the, the, the hope culminates in worship, then I think it gives you, it must, it gives you a, a deep sense of purpose in your life. Um, that your life really counts. That it has real transcendent meaning. Whether on the personal, spiritual level, it is worship to God whether you go out in the world and minister in the social spheres, it is worship to God. It is all considered worship to God. It is all part of your service to him. It is all of your life for all of your lives. You know, he says here, doesn't he? Um, worship him in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. doesn't just say every Sunday. With all our days, all our lives until the end. I think what we're discovering here 
We're starting to do this together as a church. That is, that is, our, that is our calling. That's what God is, is making us into. And, and we have some exciting things coming in 2023. We're going to be taking some bold steps as a church. And let me encourage you, as we, as we finish out 2022, to, to, to play your part in what God has for us into 2023. But as we do, let's make sure that we are serving from the heart in righteousness and holiness, love for God. So when we see God's mercy, when we're filled with his spirit, when we anticipate total salvation, when we see Jesus, the implications being pressed out in our day, then we are motivated, I think we're freed to worship God with our whole lives. Hope is here.